Scripture reading is from James 2, 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Father, again we come to you because even understanding your word is something we cannot do with our own flesh. We come to you right now to ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to respond to your holy word. And Father, I come to you as the preacher of this text, humble, asking for your grace. Help me to preach this text so that it is heard as your word, not as mine. Purify my preaching that it may honor and glorify you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things I'm learning to to love about River Community Church is that you love long sermons. I've gotten longer each week. And nobody's gotten mad at me, so thank you. No, I, I hope that that trend stops today, but we, of course, will, will find out. Um, all right, so this is a tough text that we're going to be looking at today, but an important text to understand what we mean when we talk about faith alone. On September 23rd, 1999, NASA scientists and engineers were preparing to celebrate the Mars Climate Orbiter successfully entering orbit around the planet Mars. It had traveled 287 days. It had crossed 416 million miles. It was the culmination of thousands of man-hours and millions of dollars, of taxpayer dollars, I should always remember NASA, in great anticipation of this story, sent a press release describing the feat that was to be celebrated imminently. However, the occasion went from celebration to disappointment when NASA lost radio contact with that satellite right at the moment it was supposed to enter orbit. Two days later, NASA announced that that satellite had been lost for good. The mission was deemed a complete failure. What happened? Human error. 
engineering error. There's always scientific breakthroughs and engineering mistakes, as we learn. But this was uh, turned out to be a problem from a conversion error in one of the engineer's calculations. We know that there are uh, international system of measurement, and there's the English system of measurement, and if you forget the two, uh, you make a major problem. And so when it came time to, dis- to, to do the calculations for the uh, entering of orbit, he did not convert the units correctly. And because of that, the orbiter was rejected by the atmosphere and was lost into endless space. In engineering school, this was uh, always used as an example to check your units because it shows the seriousness that can come from a conversion error. So it's a problem for satellites, but as we look at the gospel, we also see it's a problem for Christians too. This story parallels something Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus states here in one of the scariest pronouncements in all of Scripture that there will be people who stand before Jesus thinking that they were part of his flock, and find out they never were. They will find out, well, that they do not belong in the kingdom. This means that much like that satellite, there are many people who are traveling towards eternity thinking that they are going to enter into the celebration of the kingdom only to discover when it is too late that they are banished to the outer darkness. What is the cause of this tragic misunderstanding? Put simply, there is a conversion error. They thought they were saved, but something about their conversion was missing. Today we are continuing our series on first things, the five solas of the gospel. We are going to take a second week on the doctrine of faith alone because we need to understand what it means to be saved by faith alone. Saved by faith alone is the slogan that refers to the scriptural teaching that a person is justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Faith justifies us because it unites us to Christ. Just like I said last week, it is like a plug being put into the outlet. Your plug is faith. It is not faith that saves. It is the fact that that plug is put into the wall, that it has the power of electricity to power it. And so it is when our faith is put in Jesus that it has the power of Jesus to save us. So we are justified by faith alone because it unites us to Christ. By this union, Christ's death on the cross pays for our sins. By this union, Christ's perfect righteousness is credited to us. So that when God looks at us, a believer in Jesus, he sees the righteousness of Jesus and can declare us righteous in his sight. Therefore, we are justified by faith alone. However, saying that we are not justified by our works is not the same thing as saying that works are unimportant. Or that works don't have anything to do with our salvation. Is someone saved who says they believe in Jesus 
but show no good works in their life as a result. Is that person saved? The doctrine of faith alone raises the important question, what sort of faith saves? The reformers were careful to clarify the meaning of faith alone by saying that we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. What they meant was that saving faith is accompanied by the evidence of a changed life. And so as a church that is grounded on preaching the gospel and is committed to faith alone, we must be clear what sort of faith saves. Clarifying what is saving faith is the concern of our text from James today. Some see in James' words a clear contradiction with the Apostle Paul and what he taught us last week, that salvation is by faith alone. However, when we go through this text, we will see that there is no contradiction between James and Paul. In fact, they are complementary to one another. James is simply making sure that we understand what saving faith looks like by pointing us to the three real actions that are inseparable to saving faith. Given the stakes, James' words call us to sober self-examination. Are these three real actions of saving faith found in you? Let's turn to the text and look at the first of these real actions. Saving faith, the first real action of saving faith, saving faith loves. Saving faith loves. We're looking at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, and if you want to follow along with your handout and take notes, then you can, uh, you can remember this even longer. Saving faith loves. James raises the key question in this text right at the top in verse 14 when he asks, what is saving faith? In verse 14 we read, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Can that faith save him is the key question. Now note very carefully here that James' question assumes that there is a faith that saves. This is not an argument against being saved by faith alone. This is an argument about a definition of faith that is insufficient to save. So what is it? What is the faith that saves? That is Paul's concern, or James' concern. What is the faith that saves? James asks, is a said faith, merely saying the words, I believe, is that the faith that saves? Is a person saved merely because they say or have said at some time in the past, I believe in Jesus, even if their life shows absolutely no change, no evidence of Jesus in their life? Is that sufficient faith? That's a very important question, isn't it? That's a question we have to know. Some believe that this is what faith alone is. Just simply show me some evidence that at some point when you were a child at vacation Bible school, you said, I believe in Jesus, and we don't have to look at the fact that there was no evidence of that belief in your life for the 45 years afterwards. As long as we have that, we can preach your funeral and we'll be fine. 
But James doesn't say that. James implies that there is a faith that does not save. Let's give an illustration. If I were to pull out a piece of paper that I had with a marker written $1 on it, and I said, this is a $1 bill, and I want you to exchange it for that candy bar, is saying that this piece of paper is a $1 bill, make it a real $1 bill. No, it doesn't. Real money is connected to the treasury. It is a note that is backed by actual value, by the treasury of the government. Real money has telltale features. So that as we use money in our economy, as we handle money in our hands, we're familiar with its texture, with its ink, with its weight, with its fibers. So the more and more you handle real money, the more and more aware of what is true of real money becomes known to you. And when a piece of paper is put in front of you with $1 scribbled on it, you recognize by so many features that it falls short of real money. And it gets bounced. It gets rejected. You don't get the candy bar. Now, there are some who have gone to a lot of effort of creating really good-looking fake dollars. They're called counterfeiters. Some of them have made dollars that look so much like the real thing that they are able to actually give it to somebody at the store and get the goods. But when that dollar comes to the treasury, when it comes home to the place where it says, this is uh, the real bank, it is discovered, it is rejected, it is bounced. The point is that counterfeit money does not survive. It is discovered and rejected. So if we recognize the fate of a counterfeit dollar, we need to also recognize the fate of a counterfeit faith. James is arguing that a said faith, just one that says, I believe in Jesus, and that be the entirety of it, is a counterfeit faith. He gives us an example. He says, imagine that somebody comes to you poorly clothed and lacking in food, a person in clear need, a person who is, is struggling with poverty. Can that person say, I am compassionate, I am a compassionate person, and yet do not a single thing to help that person who needs it? James says, no. That is counterfeit compassion. You cannot say you are a compassionate person without having evidence of being a compassionate person, without doing what a compassionate person does. Is the, the person says, go in peace, be warmed and filled. That sounds so caring. It sounds so sweet and theological. But if it has the ability to help that person and does nothing, those words are not compassion. They are heartlessness. If all we give to somebody in need are mere words, those words amount to no real love. James sharpens this very subtly for us, but he does sharpen it because he says that the person that is poorly clothed and lacking in food is a brother or sister. 
He says, in, a, in effect, that the person that is in need is a fellow believer. This is the one that is in need. And I think in these words, James reveals what true saving faith is, or at least part of what true saving faith is. Because he says that because of faith, you have brothers and sisters. What he is telling us is that faith, real saving faith, are not mere words. They are pledges of commitment that make you family. They turn you from brother from, from strangers to brothers and sisters. Last week when we talked about faith alone, we said this, when we are saved by faith alone, we are saying we live for Christ alone. Faith in Jesus is seen in our love to his people. Listen to what the Apostle John says in his first letter. We know that we have passed out of death into life, Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever does not love abides in death, meaning he is not moved into the life of salvation. And so, what we are being told here is that saving faith loves, because saving faith connects us to the treasury of Jesus and bears the fruit of Jesus in your life which first and foremost is love. We need to recognize when we talk about love being a part of saving faith that we have absolutely no contradiction with the Apostle Paul. If you go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, we are told, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. When Paul is talking about salvation by faith alone, he is talking about a faith that works through love. The same definition that James is giving us here. Saving faith loves. So saving faith loves. I want you to see here an encouragement. If you have saving faith, be encouraged. Your faith makes a real difference in the real world. When you live your life as a Christian in a world full of need, you will have risen to those needs with love And your life will make a difference. You can look back and see the love that has been spent from your life. What an encouragement to see the difference your life makes. But I also have to warn you, if your faith shows no evidence of love, it is counterfeit. And I warn you, if you keep holding to that faith, it is going to bounce like a $3 bill. So the second real action that we need to see after, after the first one, saving faith loves, is this. Saving faith trusts. Saving faith trusts. James continues his argument in verses 18 and 19. He's, he imagines a, a conversation with somebody who's disagreeing with him at this point, saying, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So in James' opponent saying, you have faith and I have works, the idea there is that faith and works are independent. You might be a faith person. You might be a works person. It's all good. You might be a worker. 
You might be a manager. Right? No. No, that's not, doesn't sound right at all. It's all good. doesn't matter, you know, whether you want to be a worker or whether you just want to sit in the chair and watch people work. Well, no, we don't really like that. That doesn't, that doesn't jive. And so the idea that we can have a separate, independent idea of you can just have faith or you can have works, that's just fine. That's what the opponent is saying. I just have faith. That's what I am. I'm the faith guy. You guys go... Take the buckets, take the paint, and do the work. I'm the faith guy. Right? That's not how it works, James says. He replies by saying, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James is making a, a little bit of a slap here, saying, how do you even know you have faith if it shows nothing? Imagine a husband says, I love my wife. And somebody says, well, Well, tell me, how how do you love your wife? Well, by doing absolutely nothing. That love comes up pretty short, doesn't it? That doesn't really mean love at all. And so James is saying, if you can't show anything from your faith, how do you know you even have faith? Rather, consider my situation. I will show you my faith by my works. Again, this is what saving faith involves. Saving faith shows itself by works. The works that James is talking about in this entire paragraph flow out of faith. They are not alongside faith. They are not in replacement of faith. They are flowing out of faith. How do you know James has faith? He says, look at my works, which my faith produces. Okay? So again, we are not against faith alone, as we we preached last week. Again, we can go back to Paul and see the same statement said in Ephesians. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here, Paul is is saying the exact same thing. You are saved not by works, you are saved by faith, but the faith that saves you brings you into a life of good works that God has prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So you can go through that text backwards and say, I have believed in faith, where are the good works that were prepared for me to do from the foundation of the world? Are they in my life? They should be. If the faith that has saved you is the faith that God has given you as a gift. So saving faith is inseparable from a faith that does good works. James exposes the lacking element in this counterfeit faith by asking a very pointed question. How can you be saved by the same faith that demons have? James asks this question By saying, you believe in God? That's great. Even the demons believe and shudder. So what is being said here? James is saying that saving faith is more than mere intellectual assent. It is more than just saying, I know the facts of the gospel. I even agree that the facts of the gospel are true. That in and of itself is not saving faith because demons say the exact same thing. 
Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Demons believe Jesus is the Son of God. Go through the Gospels of Mark and Matthew and Luke and look at the demons. They have a better confession than the disciples about who Jesus is all the way through. They call Jesus the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. Go to the book of Acts, and a demon actually says to the Apostle Paul, you are preaching the way of salvation. Demons even know that the gospel is true, and they know that if you believe in the gospel, you will be saved. They know who Jesus is. They know who God is. They know what the gospel is. They know all of that, and yet are demons saved? Not at all. But even more than than that they know that, demons respond to that with shuddering. They are terrified. It is a truth that shakes them in their bones. So there is an emotional response that demons have to the gospel. And if we look at this, this passage and all that it tells us, it tells us a couple important things. Saving faith is not merely knowledge. Saving faith is not merely agreement. Saving faith is not even emotional response to the gospel. Saving faith is still something more. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, that there is a difference between godly grief and worldly grief. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. What's that mean? It means I can preach to you. You can be grieved. You can be emotionally moved. But that also is not all there is to saving faith. There is something more. So what separates demon faith from saving faith? The reformers recognized as they, as they studied the scriptures and understood the gospel that there are truly three pieces to saving faith. The first is knowledge. We have to know what the gospel is. The gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth in a human body, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead three days later, has ascended into heaven. We have to believe those facts. We have to know the truth of those. We have to have the knowledge. Moreover, we have to have what's called assent. We have to say, I not only have heard those facts, I believe the truth of those facts. I agree with those facts. I don't argue against them. I agree. That's true. But there is a third element to saving faith, and that is trust. That is trust. It is saying, not only do I know the facts, not only do I agree with the facts, but I put my trust in the facts. An example of this is a chair or a stool, we could say. All right? Take a look at this stool. You agree it's a stool? You believe it's a stool? Faith, trust, is not just saying that. It's putting your weight on the stool. Trusting that it will hold you. Trusting that it will carry you. That is the difference between demon faith and saving faith. Demons do not put themselves in a trusting relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And if all we have is knowledge of Jesus and agreement with the gospel, but don't actually put our weight into the gospel, we have demon faith. Notice carefully how James uses the words in this this phrase, you believe that God is one. The word that is so telltale there is that. You believe that. The faith here is confessional, creedal, but it is not personal. When we move into the gospel, we believe in the God who is one. We believe in the Jesus Christ who died for our sins. This is illustrated so beautifully in the Gospel of John. Jesus has just been giving difficult teaching, and many of his disciples have been pulling away and saying, I can't follow along with this. Jesus then said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter is not saying what you just said was easy, and I understand it, and I'm really cool with it. (laughs) Peter is saying, I know you. I trust you. I follow you. I go where you go, even if I don't understand, even if I don't know where it ends. I follow you. I can't go anywhere else because your words are eternal life. I could not forsake them. I need them. I live by them. I go where they tell me to go. Saving faith trusts. Saving faith follows. Saving faith shows itself by faithfulness. I think in this, in this knowledge of what saving faith is, there is great assurance. Because once again, if you have saving faith, you can say with James, I will show you my faith by my works. There's great assurance in that. Your faith has fruitfulness that will assure you when doubts come. But if your saving faith lacks trust, then be warned. For it is the same as demon faith. And if all you have is demon faith now, then eventually you will end up in the company of demons. So saving faith loves, saving faith trusts. The third thing we need to see is that saving faith works. Now James here comes really close and makes us all nervous when he turns to this final argument and says, we are justified by works. As we have been uh, growing in the knowledge of Paul's teaching, we see those words and we go, yikes, that doesn't seem to fit. Justified by works. We need to understand, first of all, how James uses the word justify. There are two options in the commentaries. One is the idea that justify means to demonstrate or to make visible to others. So I show you my faith by, uh, by my works. But the other is, actually for very similar to what Paul does, is that it is our justification before God, that it is being justified in God's sight as righteous at the judgment. And I think if we look at this text carefully, the latter, the second of those, is preferred, since it is God's judgment that is the focus of the text. 
James is not talking about what our faith looks like to other people as he goes through these examples. He is talking about how, how uh, uh, God responds to these particular figures who have works. So is James contradicting Paul? Do we have here a conflict in Scripture? I, will, I, I argue strongly and, and uh, uh, believe firmly that there is no contradiction here. James is going to give us two biblical examples to show us the importance of works in saving faith. Abraham and Rahab. Now, Abraham and Rahab are about as opposite of two people as you could pick in the Scriptures. Abraham was the patriarch. Abraham was a, a, a man of means. Abraham was the founder of the nation of Israel. Abraham is the starry, glowy founding father. He's the George Washington. Does no wrong. Awesome. Everybody loves Abraham. Abraham does no wrong. And then there's Rahab. Rahab is not at all in the same group in your mind as Abraham. Rahab was a prostitute. She lived a sinful life. Rahab was a Canaanite. She was a member of the people who were the enemy of God. Rahab was a woman of insignificant means and of insignificant position. And yet, James picks both Abraham and Rahab to show you that saving faith is the same for all. There is nobody who is excluded from what James says is true saving faith. Both Abraham and Rahab reveal their saving faith because their faith works. Note well as we look at these examples that the works in view, both for Abraham and Rahab, follow their faith. The first thing we are told in both examples is that they believed, that they had faith in God. And so when we talk about the works in this passage, they are in no way separate from their faith. Rather, they are the fruit of their faith. So we'll, we'll spend most of our time on Abraham. Abraham is the, the founding father of Israel who uh, had one son named Isaac, who was going to be the promised one that was going to uh, fulfill all the promises that God had given him. And then one day, God came to Abraham and said, I want you to sacrifice your son on the altar. And it's that story that James picks up. Abraham had already believed in God and was told in chapter 15 that that belief in God was counted as righteousness. But James focuses on Genesis chapter 22 because that is where the faith bore its fruit most clearly. In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham responds with obedience to the command of God. He takes Isaac up to the altar, is willing to sacrifice in obedience to God's words. And then the silence is broken, and God says in Genesis 22 verse 12, Now I know that you fear God. And Abraham uh, was given another sacrifice instead of his son. What James wants us to see here is that the place where Abraham's faith was proven genuine before God was in Genesis chapter 22. It was revealed, it was shown that God was justified in justifying uh, Abraham's faith because that faith truly worked. That faith truly responds with obedience. James notes that Abraham's faith was active 
with his works, and that his works brought Abraham's faith to completion or maturity. The idea is that the works were not in competition with his faith, were not in replacement of his faith. They were the things that confirmed, verified, grew, and showed the fullness of his faith. All right? In Genesis chapter 22 is where uh, James says that uh, the scriptures were fulfilled that uh, Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness. Fulfilled, literally meaning filled full, brought to its completion. I think an example for marriage helps this. in, In marriage, you come and you give vows to one another. You will, you'll love and you'll hold, you'll cherish in sickness and in health and richness and poorness. And we all come to weddings and we say, oh, those are beautiful words. Do they have any idea <laughs> what they are saying? Because we sit in the congregation with 5, 10, 15, 20 years or more of marriage and we know what those vows ask and how those vows are going to be proved in our life. Now, That couple is married, sealed, in a covenant at the moment that they give those vows on day one of their marriage. But when are those vows proved? When are those vows fulfilled? Someday they do get fulfilled. Someday the sickness comes. Someday the poorness comes. Someday the challenge to those vows come. And those vows are proven by our faithfulness to them. Does that make sense? The vows are instant, but they are proven in practice, just like in our justification by faith. Our justification is instant the moment we put our faith in Christ. But that justifying faith is proven in that we fulfill what that faith means by living in faithfulness. Okay? So when James says he is, we are justified by works and not by faith alone, I think everybody wished that James could have used a little different language, but he didn't, and I think perhaps to make us think hard. However, we need to recognize when we, when we see that James is talking about a deficient faith and not the same kind of faith that Paul has in mind, that there is no contradiction. James' point is that faith that justifies is faith that produces good works. Here there is no contradiction with Paul. In Galatians chapter 6, he tells his readers after laying out justification by faith alone, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Paul is agreeing with James that the faith that justifies is the faith that reaps things to the Spirit, sows fruit and reaps to the Spirit. The faith that justifies is the faith that does good works. A working faith is a justifying faith. That's as simple as we can say it. A working faith is a justifying faith. A faith that does not work leaves great question about whether it's a justifying faith. So saving faith works. It bears fruit. There's great encouragement here. What 
what do we see Abraham called? He's the only person in the Scripture that is called a friend of God. The one whose faith works, who loves and trusts, has a relationship with God that is profoundly intimate, that can even be called friendship. Because you know God's will, you've experienced God's will, and you walk with God's will in a way that the world knows nothing about. And you are blessed with the experience of God and friendship with him. But if we are trusting in a bare faith and a faith that does not work, James calls it very clearly a dead faith. It is the same as a body without a spirit. And if that is the faith that we are carrying through this life, if that is the faith that we are going to stand before God with, and Jesus Christ is going to meet us, then we will meet the same end as that satellite. It will be the outer darkness and the words, I never knew you, ringing in our ears. So what is the faith that saves? James tells us that saving faith demonstrates itself in three real actions. Saving faith loves, saving faith trusts, and saving faith works. This is what the Reformers meant when they said we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. We are saved because we trust in Jesus Christ alone for our righteousness. But the faith that trusts in Jesus also lives for Jesus and bears fruit for Jesus. So the question we must ask ourselves today is this. Is your faith fruit-bearing? Do not be deceived. We will not be saved by any other kind. Where does faith that bears good fruit come from? This is the critical question. We've listened to this sermon and perhaps you are convicted, perhaps you are questioning, perhaps you are wondering about your faith, whether it demonstrates these real actions. As you think about them, where does your gaze go? Do you start saying, okay, I have a checklist. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to fulfill this and that. Do you look to find saving faith from within? Do you see saving faith as something that you are able to produce by your own will? If at this moment you are turning from grace and now finally saying, okay, it's the flesh's job to figure this out and to do what needs to be done to be saved by faith, then sign me up, I'm going to get to work, then you have gone down the wrong track. What hope for finding saving faith do you think you will find within yourself? Paul has already shown us that the works man can do are dead works. And James has shown us that the faith man produces is dead faith. How can we hope to find saving faith from a place that only produces death? Jesus gives the verdict plainly in John chapter 3, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The need for saving faith must not lead us to look within, must not lead us to put confidence in our flesh of being able to do it within ourselves, because the flesh cannot give birth to spiritual life. Saving faith is something God must put in our hearts. Saving faith, like all of our salvation, is a gift of God. It is by the grace of God alone. James says this clearly, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, 
coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The faith that we need to be saved is the faith that only God can provide. We are saved by his will, who brings us forth into life. We must be born again by God to be saved. This good news is that God is gracious and he is generous. James tells us what we must do. Ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. If you look at yourself and you see a lack of saving faith, ask God today for the faith that you need. Ask him to fill you, renew you, and flow through you the good works that prove you are his. He is faithful. He will do it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this word from James. It is a challenging word, but Father, it is challenging because we cannot afford to slumber. We cannot afford to be foolish. We must examine ourselves for the fruit of faith. For faith that is simply words that show no love, that show no trust, that show no works, is a dead faith and a demon faith. Father, save us from the deception that wants to believe we can, say we believe and live any way we want. Save us, Father, from the deception that we are saved even though we have no relationship with you. And Father, I pray that for all of us who do have a relationship with you, that we recognize that the same answer to the one who was lost is the answer to us. We must go deeper into your grace. We must connect ourselves to the vine of Christ if we are to bear fruit. We must ask daily for the faith, for the renewal of your spiritual strength in us to walk by faith and not by flesh. Father, bear fruit in this congregation that brings glory to your name and glory to the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray the prayer that he has taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.